I would say it was a B. Okay. Maybe a B effort. I throw Legos on it, you step on them and say things, and then I respond. That's how <laughs> yeah, this works. Scream in pain. I can't tell you how excited I am. It's episode 14 of the Technologist Podcast. I'm Larry Burden, and he always feels like somebody's watching him, or at least should be. It's the technologist, David Noller. For full entertainment value, should be. Should be, and maybe for the safety of others, but that's... Yeah, not participating, just observing. Exactly. Fair enough. Uh, today's topic, should you choose to accept it? Keeping the lids down or managing in-class device usage. So you just showed me your your yeah. show notes. You know, I had mentioned I'm just going to cede the floor because... We've talked about several of the items that you had sent me previously right, right, in right. other pods. Yeah. And anybody that has digital devices in their classroom, which is pretty much everybody, I mean, K-12 at this yeah, point, right? how to manage that device and make it a successful learning tool, I think is, any advice is good advice. So, yeah. yeah. I'm going to start with something I see at the high school every day. When I walk in and I, I park in my spot, there will often be a parent waiting for their student parked in the handicap space. That driver does not have a tag or a license plate. It's just a convenient place to pick up their child from school. They know they're not supposed to park there, but they do it anyway because it's convenient. Every day we see people drive through those stop signs, like the Michigan rolling stop, and sometimes just there's nobody in the crosswalk, we're just going to go. I've been in your high school. Oftentimes it's not a rolling stop. There's right. no consideration of stopping whatsoever. I'm being generous. <laughs> so... You know, they know they're not supposed to, but it's not convenient for them to stop for some reason. So they just keep on going through, often with their students in the car with them. And what they're doing is demonstrating that rules are for sometimes. And when you're confronted with legal and ethical dilemmas, you can kind of determine your response based on whether or not anybody's watching. You're not breaking the law unless you get caught. Well, there you go. Uh, it's not illegal unless you caught. You're still breaking yeah. the law. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that's valid. Yeah, yeah. So the reason I bring that up is because of what I want to bring up with the the first item, which is within the ISTE standards, there are standards for students and there are standards for teachers. And for the student, it says that students engage in positive, safe, legal, and ethical behavior when using technology, including social interactions online, or when using networked devices. We give them networked devices. The ISTE standard is that they will engage and use those tools in a legal, ethical way. But there's also a teacher strand to the ISTE standards. And under Citizen 3C, mentor students in safe, legal, and ethical practices with digital tools and the protection of intellectual rights and property. And 3D, model and promote the management of personal data and, and digital identity and protect student data privacy. I see where we're going here. Yeah. So like the parents or others who drive through a stop sign or wait to pick up their child in the handicap space, we as teachers need to model legal and ethical behavior for our students if we're going to ask them to do the same. And that has a lot to do with device management, as it turns out. Okay. Because modeling legal and ethical behavior doesn't just mean citing your sources, using pictures in your presentation and citing them and making sure you're using them in a legal and ethical way. It also has to do with how that student's participating in the social world of the classroom. In that, we've responded to some of the challenges we've had with mobile devices by just banning them. 
kids can't have phones in the room because they don't know how to use them properly. And so we're just going to say you can't have them. But everybody's got a laptop. And you still have to manage their participation in that community in a way that they can demonstrate legal and ethical behavior. And for that to happen, I think teachers need to structure their lessons so that the student is in the habit of using that device in the educational model, and that's it, and not using it to distract themselves, et cetera. And I think that gets into maybe not the legal aspect, but the ethical aspect of using the tool. I like to compare it to a hammer. It's a great tool for what it's used for, mm -hmm. but you don't go, you know what? There's no nail around here right now, so feel free to do whatever you want with that hammer. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, there's no nail, so use it for whatever you want to. Um, and honestly, I think that's a great metaphor for what happens in classrooms. We start students on a task. Maybe there's not a an end game or a, a, a time limit and kids finish and then all of a sudden they're like, well, I've got this hammer. I've got this hammer to use. Uh, let me let me uh, pound a hole in the wall. And I think in part this might be based on some of our old practices. The old devices we used to have in the classroom took like 30 seconds to a minute to boot up. I think some of the teachers of my generation are used to seeing open laptops because to shut them down and then to open them back up again, you lost a couple minutes of instructional time. I remember having conversations not long ago where we would discuss, okay, we have to understand that there's going to be a boot up time right. and be patient with that. Right. These Chrome devices boot up instantly. So I've even changed my practice where we had a warm-up question where they responded on, on Google Classroom. Then they closed their lids. I gave them a little bit of information that they needed in order to do the next task. Open your lids. Do that task. They had seven minutes to do that task. Close your lids. We did, we played a game today. We did a simulation of village building, world building uh, in my sociology class. Lids were down for that. And then last three minutes, open up your laptop and respond to that review question after the experience. So it was up, down, up, down, up, down all throughout the day. And not once did a kid have enough time to do my task and get distracted away from the learning of the day. I had a kid fall asleep, but that had nothing to do with the device. Didn't go to bed till four in the morning. So it's not perfect, but it wasn't the device's fault that somebody got off task. And it wasn't my lack of managing their experience with the device's fault. I completely see where that paradigm has changed from the past, where a teacher would have a laptop time, mm -hmm. open them up, recognize it's going to take a minute and a half to get the laptop up. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do whatever we can while that, while that lid is up. Mm -hmm. And then when we close that lid, it's done. I used to actually schedule uh, warm-ups during open the lid time. So we'd get the computers, bring them back to our tables, open them up, set the power, and then do like our opening question while it powered up. And in that, you know, kids are constantly going back and forth, checking to see if it's up. Okay, now it's time for my password. So that kind of, of stepping through a lesson, I guess I'm jumping back to the example, that kind of stepping through the lesson when it's intentional and you're like, this is a question that's going to take three minutes and then close your lids. Then you do your instruction, whatever you're going to do for the day. If they are ready to respond, then they open them back up again. I think that's something that we're not seeing a lot of in the classroom, that we're not seeing teachers manage the availability 
And I that as an opening step, it's actually very easy to do. It's something everybody can do. And I think it's going to resolve a large percentage of problems that people might be having already in the classroom. I have some other ideas for other things, but that's probably the biggest, easiest one to do. Just managing, is it open or closed? Yep. Lids up, lids down. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. It's very easy for the teacher visually to see. Oh, that's the thing. Where you are. Yeah. When you say, close your lids, please. And I'm always very nice about it. Close your lids, please. They all go down. And then there's the one kid who's like, maybe he's just trying to finish that question. And maybe he's right. But I know. And I might give him like time just to like, once I'm ready to launch into my thing. And then if I have to say it again, it goes down. They're not going to fight about that. In regards to like the stepping through the lesson, I set mini deadlines and I put up timers. I don't necessarily have the timer on the board. I'll have it on my watch so I can then say, well, I'm going to give you a couple more minutes. Plus, I don't really like the kids knowing how much time they have, at least on a countdown timer where they can be like, let's see, we got five minutes. Well, hey, by the way, we're going after school for pizza. You know, mm -hmm. we still got a couple minutes, 30 seconds before the, All right. the timer's up. So yeah. I manage the time on my watch, but I tell them you have five minutes to answer this question. And then if I see that they're still engaged in the question and most people are still writing or whatever they're doing that I'm asking them to do. Oh, you have one more minute. And then that minute turns into a minute and a half and sometimes if, two. If the classroom is engaged, yeah. you have the ability yeah. to say. Yeah. And then as I see like half of the kids are done, 30 seconds. I know that was a long minute. Sorry, everybody. I lost track. 30 seconds. You know, I kind of pretend that I wasn't paying attention. Those mini timers have made such a difference in my class in terms of helping kids manage their time by me managing it for them. And sometimes there, there's kids who are slow in processing. And I'll tell all of my students, look, we're not all going to process at the same time. If it takes a little extra time to do something, we can manage that or uh, we can account for that. But so often these small things are like formative assessment anyway, that mm -hmm. I'm just stepping through the lesson. And it also goes back to the idea of engaging all of your students whenever you can, instead of asking a question and then saying, who knows the answer and having those two, three kids always raise their hand. This is part of that process I've talked about before of everybody's engaged in the material. And then we go to volunteers for the explanations and things so that even if I don't get everybody talking in a, in a classroom, I've got everybody thinking and writing before that even starts. It's a great way to manage your classroom momentum too. You're eliminating a lot of dead time. When other people are answering a question that they've been called on verbally, students can tune out. When everyone's engaged in answering the same question at the same time and you have three minutes and tick tock and here we go, 30 seconds. Okay, write your last sentence. Okay, time's up. There's a positive sense of urgency about that. The process just lends itself towards more participation and more engagement. Learning is hard work. It's mentally taxing. Mm -hmm. We hope it is. And the model that you're talking about is actually pretty similar to kind of a common practice right now among creatives, the Pomodoro technique. Okay. For timing where you you work in four 25-minute cycles. Mm -hmm. So you work for 25 minutes, take a five-minute break. 25 minutes, five-minute break. After four of those, you take a 15-minute break. <laughs> and then you continue that cycle. So you're not, you you have a, a minute or five minutes every 25 minutes to take a step back, regroup, yeah. and then jump back in. And that kind of keeps that creative momentum going as opposed to, kind of slogging through sure. something, which 
know, what, how long is the attention span of a teenager? Right? Exactly. And so, you know, part of what we're talking about here is how device management leads to improved learning. It's not just about maintaining discipline. It's about improving instruction. And I think those practices of stepping through lessons, providing mini timelines, things like that, I think that's going to improve instruction at the same time that it improves the relationship everybody has with the device in the room. Two birds, one stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very simple. Uh, a couple more things. One is being very transparent about what you know as a teacher with your students. I have demonstrated to my kids what texting under the table looks like, what texting from a backpack looks like, what texting from inside my purse looks like. I know what those body shapes look like. When you've got a kid kind of leaning back and he's got one hand down at his side and he's got his hand in his pocket, but it's only halfway in his pocket and he's kind of looking at the outside of his pocket, he's texting somebody. <laughs> I know what that looks like. So I'll demonstrate it to him and say, look, I shouldn't see any of the following postures. And they kind of laugh and they kind of, they get it, they're high school kids. But I also point out things like game face. I never want to see your game face. And they're used to hearing game face like sports. But the game face that I'm talking about. This is a this is an audio pod and you're going to show me the game face. I'm not. And I'm going to be like, I really wish. So explain this. I'm going to be descriptive because okay. I know this is an audio pod. Game face happens when the kid has his Chromebook open and he's got two fingers on either side of the keyboard right down where the shift key is. And then his eyes are staring, his mouth is open and his face is slack. And you can tell he's doing something like playing the snake game or Tetris or something that's taking all of his attention because he looks focused. It's just not focused on you. And if he's only using those two fingers for like the arrow keys and the shift, he's not typing a paper. So game face is another thing that I bring up. And I say, I know what it looks like. I know what you're doing. When you say, no, I'm not, I say, yes, you were. And then we will both say, no, I'm not. And I'll say, yes, you were. And then we'll agree that you were doing it. And then we'll move on. <laughs> and, you know, again, maybe it's because it's high school. I get to use that kind of humor as a way to bridge the gap between I'm recognizing it, but I'm not shaming you. But we all know you're not supposed to be doing that. So let's not. Yeah. I'm just transparent with them about what I know and what I see and what what I see means. The last thing that has to do with management, it has to do with community standards. You know, we, we encourage our students to be good digital citizens and we encourage them to be part of a community. And uh, at West, we have these standards to treat all people with dignity, honesty, respect, and trust. And part of respecting other people has to do with ensuring and helping to accommodate their success. And so I tell my kids that if you have a friend or table mate or somebody nearby, who you see as distracting themselves, you know that you want that person to do well. It's okay to say, maybe you should do the thing that we're all also doing. To say something kindly and respectfully to encourage that student to get back on track. And that can be a tough thing to do. I was just going to say, that's that's a tough ask, but I would say more, um, more likely to be effective yeah. because it's peer-to-peer. -peer. And it is a tough ask in a normal classroom. It's not a tough ask in a band or in a choir, or in a football team, or in a theater department. It's tougher in a classroom where there's less natural affinity and less natural. There's not the natural common goal. Yeah. Let me change that. There's not a perceived common goal. There right. is a common goal. The sure. common goal is there. We're supposed right. to be learning right. the content and demonstrating our learning in the mm -hmm. class. 
for whatever reason, oftentimes that's not a perceived common goal. Right. I can't obviously uh, judge Kid on whether or not they were able to get somebody back on track. But I'm hoping that by offering that as something that would be a good thing to do, somebody's going to take advantage of that and be the good friend and help their buddy get back on track. If you get one or two a year, awesome. Awesome. And you know what? Those one or two probably created a preventative environment for seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 other ones. So one final thing I would add, if you are somebody who you see a lot of these violations that you think are problematic in your classroom and you know, you're constantly doing battle, review the acceptable use policies once in a while. You know, freshmen coming in might have signed that page without even reading it. What? What? (laughs) AUPs, the acceptable use policies. Get a copy, go over them with your students, use them as a reading strategy, figure out what they mean, uh, and encourage them to read and understand what it is that they've agreed to when they've signed that paper to get that um, device. I think Taking one of those. Great tool, by the way, for later in life when they're signing those agreements right. or, and clicking on that, I agreed to the terms. and Yeah, you know, that, I, that yeah. I didn't read. Yep. Except, um, you know, certain places and certain organizations are going to hold you accountable for those. And there's going to be consequences for them that you weren't really planning on. So, yeah, I think reviewing those acceptable use policies is totally fair game in any class where you have concerns over how students are using devices. Absolutely. You have physical arrangement. Thanks for reminding me of that because I didn't write it in my own show notes. A lot of teachers have a problem with offering online test taking environments because they're afraid of cheating. I understand that. I try to give tests that are less cheatable by being less knowledge based and more like application, higher level thinking. Show me your work. Demonstrations. There are times when you've got to ask, do you know what this thing is? And sometimes that involves multiple choice. So there's a couple strategies. One's not physical, one's physical. The not physical one is using, like when I use Google Forms to create quizzes, I have a couple questions and then I put in a section break so that when that kid hits next, those two questions and his answers are now off his screen. So unless everybody goes through it at the same pace, they're not going to have the open paper or yeah. that, that smart kid's answer key in the Scantron, that's mm-hmm. not going to be up. Okay. So no, one is organizing your, your exam if you're using an online one in such a way that they step through in, in steps instead of doing it all on one screen. The physical arrangement, and my kids, my students are always surprised that I do this. I, I think it's because others don't. When they take a quiz, I have them move their chair from where they're, it normally is where they're looking at the front of the room and they put it on the other side of the table so they're looking at the back of the room. <laughs> and we tip okay. our heads. Why? Because then I see their screen. And if I stay relatively in the back of the room, they can't see where I'm looking. I might be looking at your screen. I might be looking at somebody else's screen. I tell them, if I see your screen flash to another tab, I'm going to assume you're cheating and you're going to take a zero. And I'm going to apologize if you didn't cheat. But that's the behavior of cheating. So stay on your quiz tab. Don't leave it. When you're done, close your lid. And so when my kids take a quiz. Clear and specific instructions as well. I see all of their screens. I know that they're on the quiz tab only. They close their lid when they're done. And I can see who's done and who's not. So my physical arrangement, by just simply having them sit on the other side of the desk, 
I have full view of their screens. You know, my, my initial thought was, why don't you just go to the back of the room and that way you don't have the, the kind of chaos of the move. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking more deeply about it and by changing the environment, you've created a different mindset in the student as well just by having them move. Now mm -hmm. they're in test mode. That's part of it. It's test mode. Um, the things they normally have access to look at in the room tend to be at the front. So I remove that distractor from it. I also put them in a position where they're less certain about where I am. Because if I'm in the back of the room, there's only a few places for me to go because of how the class is arranged. The front of the room has more, more space, space for me to move around. So I can very quickly and quietly move from one part of the room to another without anybody seeing me in their peripheral vision. Maybe that just means I want to be a spy or a ninja. Well, Which is those true. Those things might be true. <laughs> and I think, I think might is not strong enough. But I like being a spy ninja teacher too. Is there anything else before I move on? No, go ahead. Right. Uh, this pod's getting gamey. So last year I started developing this and I teach sociology, so I get to play along, I get to play around with society stuff. So I developed a, um, a kind of society building game where they get a number of points to spend each round on upgrades to their village. And based on the combinations that they choose, I have predetermined like consequences for that. So there's always a group that wants to pick in the first round improved weapons and military training. That group didn't do anything with food they all of a sudden become beholden to another society that took agriculture, but then they can trade their defense, their defensive capacity for the food that's available at that other place. Now that's just the first round. By the time we get to the third, fourth, and fifth round, we've got groups that are attacking other villages, other villages that are saying, we'll help you defend against them if you'll do X. And it becomes a lesson in um, how societies structure themselves around a common goal how societies will create alliances with other groups within the society when it's convenient, but will, are quick to abandon those when it no longer becomes know, useful for yeah. them or advantageous. And we talk about um, structural functionalism, conflict theory. We, we can talk about tribalism. There's so many things that, that can come out of that. But the first few steps feel like a game, and then it feels like survival. Like the first few steps, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll take horse trading or we'll take caravan so we can move around. And then they realize, well, if they took caravan and economics and food storage, they can now provide food to all these other people and manage the whole trade system where the warfare people, they did realize today, they said, when can we attack? And I said, right now. And we started rolling dice and I put the a dice roller on the screen and everything was determined by the dice roll. And I just made this all up as we went. And this might not be for everybody, but I will say, whether the game comes from your head or it comes from a box, no matter when I use it, kids always say that's the most fun I've ever had learning. The kids are learning a lot about values and uh, social structure and organization and power discrepancy and all that thing. It's mm. as a result of participating in the simulation that it's happening. I, I would love to see how you incorporate your teaching in the game, in the moment. Whereas where you're pointing out what these things are and what this moment represents or how you do that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I don't talk a lot about it during the game. I let it play. 
um, because I want to keep everybody as active and as into it as possible. So we're going to play another 15, 20 minutes on Monday, and then I'm going to ask the questions about how does this relate to the concepts that we've been studying all week? I'm going to let it go because we could keep talking about yeah. this. In closing, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TCAPSLOOP. At Technologist. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play Store, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your ear candy. Remember, you're never too old to play. Play a game today. They're good for you. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.